and welcome. You're listening to Law and Legend with your hosts Sebastian O'Dell and Rick Scott. Law and Legend brings you myths, legends and fables from world folklore and mythology. We tell stories the way that they're meant to be told. We do it in the style of traditional storytelling enriched with traditional music and dramatic audio work. This series of Law and Legend is called The Gates of Dream. Exploring tales of encounters between the heroes and heroines of Greek myth, the gods and the spirits of the Greek underworld, and the lands of dream, death, and darkest fate. This episode of Lore and Legend comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers, Storyfolk, Christy Carson, Paul Jackson, and Sean Powell. Thanks to all of you for your generosity and your enthusiasm for our stories. Please consider joining Christy, Paul and Sean in supporting the podcast by becoming a patron. For more details, you can visit our website and click on Support Us. In this, the first part of our second episode, on a distant, storm-swept island, a dream-haunted queen must defend her home from the ravages of pirates and thieves and save her son from an untimely death. From storyteller Rick Scott and featuring the music of Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy, this is the dream of Penelope. Hero muses the voice of the poet as it rises and fills the hall. Accompanied by string and voice, the minstrel he sings a song, rising and falling, a bitter song of glory and loss, of men's wild hopes and their deepest pains. He sings of the wars of Troy, of the heroes of the Greeks their fateful journeys from that war-blasted shore across the wine-dark sea to hearth and home. He sings of the warlord Agamemnon, of wise and venerable Nestor, of the red-haired king Menelaus and his wife Helen, and he sings of a man called Odysseus, lost forever at sea. Then, the Lady of the Hall appears, as she does every morning, with her handmaidens at her elbows. They quickly leap to serve the men who crowd the hall, fill their plates, brim their cups, pour silver jugs of water across their greasy fingers. They, they know the price to pay if they do not. And this day, as every other, the Lady Penelope appears immaculate. The vision of the noble hostess, a refined queen, steward of her husband's absent throne. But this time, when she hears the lilting words that the minstrel is singing, she frowns. And there, standing beneath the hall's great pillars, she addresses herself directly to him. Phemios, 
You know of the songs, of high deeds of gods and heroes, as the poets tell them. Let these men hear one of those other songs. Or else they can sit in silence while they drink their wine. But sing no more this bitter song that pains my heart. It opens up my heart's very wound for the absent king and my long-missed love. But at her words, the lady's son, Telemachus, leaps to his feet. Mother, he said, do not rob these men of the joy of song. Our pain is not the fault of poets, but of Zeus, who gives such fates to heroes like Odysseus. He was not the only one at Troy who never came home, and we must honour those others, how many countless others who lost their lives. And so I say, you must nerve yourself to listen. But the lady gazed in surprise at her son, and his words stayed with her as she withdrew from the hall. Her son, who had never known his father, his father, who'd sailed away some 19 years ago when he was still a babe in her arms from this storm-swept island on the wild ocean, the sea-bound kingdom of Ithaca. Around the 16th year they had come, first a few, then in swelling numbers, until it seemed that every rough-blooded adventurer in the seven islands was gathered under this single roof. And they ate up all of the food that came into the house, drank up the casks of wine in the cellars. They slept in all the palace beds, in the corridors and in the great hall. They opened all the chests and dressed themselves in the fine clothes and the coloured linen. They burned up all the wood in the great hearth. And even as they did all this, the queen abided, awaited the return of her husband. She did this even though the pirates and islanders that stalked her halls called her the widow, and every day taunted her and asked her which one of them was she going to marry. And so, every morning, without fail, the queen appeared there in the great hall, and she played the role of the noble hostess, and she would beg them, as she had done every day since the first had arrived and refused to leave, to forgive her womanly weakness. It was only right of them, of course, to expect that she must remarry, she said. But they must allow her time, time to mourn the passing of her husband, if they wished her to receive them with an open heart. She was weaving a cloth of fine silver threads, and she told the pirates and islanders that it was her husband's burial shroud. Once the last stitch was finished, she promised she would choose one of them to wed. And every time a traveller came to the island, she invited them inside the house, and she asked for news of her husband. She listened to the tales they told, and she would weave them into the tapestry. Odysseus in the land of the Lotus Eaters, Odysseus 
blinding the Cyclops. Odysseus on the island of cannibals, Odysseus on the island and in the bed of Calypso. But every night, by the light of covered lamps, Penelope worked with her handmaidens to unpick the threads. And the stories were all undone, and the shroud remained unfinished. But when the singing and the feasting of that morning was done, and the interlopers had gone out from the palace to pursue their own sports, Penelope heard Telemachus climbing the stairs to her chamber. It seemed to her when she saw him that there was a new resolve in his step, a light in his eyes that she'd never seen there before. It caused her heart to swell at once with a mixture of feelings, with delight and pride, but also a troubling and deep trepidation. Telemachus, she said, what did you mean by your words this morning? I have not ever known you to speak so boldly or freely with me, or indeed to any other in that hall before. Mother, he said, there came one here this morning who called themselves an old friend of our father. Mentor was his name. But it was clear to me it was no man but some god in disguise. The one like Mentor said to me, Dare to dream. What if Odysseus returns and scatters these men who infest our home like dead leaves before the wind? They planted such thoughts and desires in me that I should take a ship, sail abroad, seek news of my long-absent father. But she shook her head and she said, My son, what would become of us if you left this place? What would hold back our guests from their purpose then? And what if the wide sea should claim you, like it did your father? Would you have me left here alone, all without hope? But mother, he said, what other way can we be three? Three of these wretched dogs? Just the other day, I stood before the assembly of elders. Penelope spoke sharply. You called the assembly? I appeared before the assembly of elders, yes. I appealed to them to restrain these men from their crimes, but they were all afraid or, or they were complicit. The prophets pronounced signs against all of them, but they answered with scorn or laughter, bold as if they were atheists. Everyone states their intent to rob me of my birthrights. And he met his mother's eyes then, searchingly, his brows narrowing painfully. They say that you have written them letters, mother, that you promise yourself to one and then the other. And even now in the very hall below us, they daily boast about how they will take my mother to their bed. About such things, none of them have just shame or godly fear. And Penelope held her son's gaze until he blushed and turned his head aside. But he said, Now I have come to manhood in the shadow of their oppression. But these past months, mother, I cannot sleep. But it seems to me that the gods themselves have put a new dream of my father in my heart. Penelope frowned. She took a deep breath. Son, she said, dreams, dreams are dark. 
and troublesome things, their meaning it's by no means clear or certain. You see, when almighty Zeus threw down the titans from their fortress, he sent his son Apollo to claim the dreaming pit at Delphi, where the navel stone of the world is laid. There dwelt the great Python, a monstrous snake with gleaming dark skin, with eyes the colour of wine and with scales glistening in every colour imaginable guarding the ancient temple of Mother Earth and the throne of the Golden Tripod. And with his burning arrows, Apollo, the son of light, split the serpent's skin and burned up his flesh. From the rotting corpse rose up sweet-smelling air that grants visions of the future. And this corpse he cast into the chasm below the throne of gold, and the bones he placed into a cauldron and buried beneath the sacred ground. From the snake's leather he made a tent and a drum on which the priests and priestesses could beat out his praises. But with her child slaughtered, Mother Earth wept thick and oily tears. And then rising up in her grief and rage, the goddess lifted up her skirts, and from beneath them vomited out the ghostly shapes of a thousand dreams. Dreams that reveal to mortals in their sleep things that have happened, and things that fate decreed would happen. And so men had no need to seek Apollo's oracles or to give him praise. And that was how it was until almighty Zeus saw how his son longed to rule the realm of worship and prophecy and have its endless streams of gold. And so, with a shake of his long locks, Zeus took pity on him, and he confused the clear shapes of the ghostly dreams, tearing out all the shadowy faith that us mortals place in them. And since that day, we've been beset with lying dreams that often lead us astray. Certainly, and as she spoke, she turned towards the loom on which she and her handmaidens were weaving the shroud. Certainly, the only dreams a woman may trust are the dreams that she has of her husband the morning before her wedding day. She said no more. Telemachus waited a moment before turning his glowering eyes away, but as he made to go, she yet called after him. And Telemachus, I have seen your father's hound Argos in the yard. He is old and sick, barely eating. He's lived far beyond his natural span. Have one of the men put him down, or do it yourself if you will, but his pain is no service to anyone. After Telemachus had taken his leave, Penelope retreated to her high chamber. She made her offerings to grey-eyed Athena, sighing deeply from the bottom of her chest. Goddess, truly are the worries in my heart as many as the dreams in the womb of Mother Earth, or as the waves in the dark wildness of the sea. 
Not only must I contend with the islanders, but my own son chafes to take his father's scepter from my hand. But he's a pup surrounded by wolves, and they will press on him until he shows his throat if I let them. Athena, reveal to me what thread the fates spin for me and my son. And presently it seemed that the god cast a deep and sweet slumber upon her. In the hall below, the islanders played on in dance and song until nightfall, when by the light of the pine torches they sank down to their beds to sleep in the court, in the feast hall, and the hallways of her house. And then in the night, the god Hermes came to Penelope in the figure of a dream. Pouring through the shutters of her window like a cracking breath of silver dust. A ghost that first flashed, then glimmered, but when it approached, bloomed into full body. And sleeping in the gates of dream, Penelope thought that she saw a man who looked exactly like Odysseus on the day that he had sailed away with the ships of the Greeks. The Odysseus gazed at her, but he said nothing. He was ruddy of body and brash of eye, with hair like dark curling hyacinth. He clasped before his breast a smoking rod of twisted gold, which spread hot incense all through the air. And when he reached out his hand to draw her from the bed, Penelope reached up, and she grasped it. The Odysseus led her down into the darkened halls of their home, past the sleeping bodies of the islanders and pirates. With each one he would stop, touch his golden rod to their forehead, and every hint of stirring breath or motion would leave them in an instant. And the Odysseus spoke in warm and lucid voice that filled the great hall. All of these men are dreaming of you, Penelope. All of them dream themselves the next king of Ithaca, that they will take the crown back to their hall, and you back to their bed. Then one by one, the Odysseus knelt beside each of the sleeping pirates and turned their faces so that Penelope could gaze into them. He told her of the men's lands and their lineage, the wealth and honour of their family, the custom and the quality of their household. Antinous, the first to arrive and refuse to leave, violent, arrogant, cruel, a leader, though, amongst the Ithacans. Eurymachus, also Ithacan. He, the most wealthy, influential, but silver-tongued and sly-hearted. Amphinomus, the most handsome, charismatic. He was the leader of the largest party of islanders. And all of the rest, twelve from Ithaca, twenty-three from Sami. 44 from Zakynthos, and 57 from Delicium. And after the last speech was done, she led the Odysseus back to her bed. He climbed in beside her 
and she made love to him. But when the morning came, the Odysseus was gone, her bed was empty, and at the absence of her husband's image, Penelope wept once more. And then the grey-eyed goddess, Athena, put a craving in the lady's heart that she had never known before, to show herself before the islanders, to fan the flames of their desire and set her beauty high before their eyes. And while she slept, the goddess bathed her cheeks and throat with ambrosia, smoothed all marks of mortal care from her brow, made her whiter than carved ivory, gave her grandeur in height and shape. She rose and she left her glowing upper room, came down the stairs with her two maids in trade, and with a shining veil before her cheeks, appeared before the islanders under the pillars of the solid roof. And this, and every time that she appeared thus in the days that followed, the hearts of those men grew faint with lust, and their knees grew weak, and their tongues grew respectful. They called her deep-minded queen, with beauty like no woman had before, no greater in majesty or mastery. And they gave to her gifts, Antinous, a fine embroidered robe fastened with twelve golden brooches, Eurymachus, a gold-wrought necklace set with sun-bright amber, Pisandros, a jewelled band for her white throat. The next night, after Penelope and her maids had unravelled the work of the day on the shroud, Hermes appeared to her again in the gates of dream. But it was not her husband's form which he wore, not his voice which he spoke to her in, but it was the figure and the face of Antinous. And every night that followed, it was Hermes who came to her, but he came to her in the figure of one of the hundred and eight pirates that slept in the hall below her, wearing the face and the form of men like Antinous, Eurymachus, Amphinomus, and Eurydamus. Of all their speeches, and of all their visions in her dreams, there were two that Penelope liked best. Amphinomus was the leader of the pirates from Dilichium, and he always spoke with wit, grace, and gentleness. He was in his manner and in his wits, something like to Odysseus. Then there was Eurydamus, who presented her quite sweetly one day, with silver earrings that shone like drops of warm moonlight. The boy was earnest, even submissive towards her. There were things about him which reminded her of her son, but one morning that same boy, flushed bright with wine, suddenly vaulted to his feet, and he declared that by rights Penelope was already his, for the gods had seen fit to send her to him in a dream. In a vision of the night, he said, he held her naked body against his own, he took his pleasure of her. 
while cool-eyed Penelope replied to him. What you say is true, Eurydamas, and in a dream you have had real pleasure of me. Then surely I must sue you for a real whore's fee. Will it be gold, or silver, or drachmas that you want? The young man flinched, and then he frowned, and he blushed at his feet. Around the hall there was cackling, until Anfinomus employed his smart tongue to smooth the young boy's wounded pride. My lady, he said, be fair. If all it took for this man to satisfy him was your phantom in a dream, then surely you'll be satisfied yourself, just by the sound that his money makes when it splashes into this here bowl of water. And as he spoke, he untied a purse of coins and he tossed it idly into one of the silver washing bowls to underscore his words. The coins clinked and sank to the bottom. The reflection of the gold glimmered on the surface. And at his words, a wave of laughter engulfed the hall. Eurydamas, shamed, sunk low down in his seat. But then it was Penelope rose, and she turned her flashing eyes upon the crowded benches, and she cried out to them, I wish it was the last time that all of you came feasting here, wooing me consorting amongst yourselves. You shower gifts on me, call yourselves suitors, and yet what, at the end of the day, have you given me? When you set yourselves to drinking and eating me out of my house and my home. When you were boys, did your fathers tell you nothing of who Odysseus was, what he represented? There isn't any man alive on Ithaca who could say that Odysseus wronged him. But how different are you in your hearts? How base and groveling. Not one of you may hold yourself a man beside him. None of you has proven his equal. And Penelope turned, and she marched from the hall. Behind her, the islanders hammered their fists on the tables and benches. There were shouts of bitch, whore, and usurper. Penelope retreated to her high chamber, and in her heart she burned with the depth of her feeling. It was a day in late summer, Penelope and her maidens were in the chambers above, working the vast fabric of the shroud upon their looms, when the crier Medon ran up from the court to their doorway, and Penelope met him at the door. Why have they sent you up here now, Medon? Do they call us again to come and play their slaves? But Medon, calm and bright, answered smoothly, my lady, my report is far worse than that. Those men, they intend to drive their keen bronze through Telemachus when he returns home, for they learned that your son sailed away from this place to Holy Pylos and other foreign courts seeking news of his father. Well, those words struck Penelope so hard, her heart and her knees felt like to fail her. 
She tried to speak, but for long minutes the deep well of her voice was dry. And when at last she found she could speak, she said, When? When did he go? Must we give him up to the sea as well? She braced herself there in the doorway of the chamber, and her women, young and old, crowded around to give comfort and share her sorrow. At last, through sudden tears that had sprung into her eyes, she spoke, Telemachus, he breaks my heart. If I had seen that sailing in his eyes, I would have told him. If he would not stay with me, then the next he may see me, I might be strung up down there in the great hall. Then at length, Penelope dried her eyes, and she straightened, and she went at once to her chambers. Quickly she bathed, dressed herself in fresh linens for worship. She filled a basket with barley and led her women to the roof, to the altars there, where she opened her heart to Athena. Tireless child of Zeus, she cried, if ever Odysseus burned at our altar beef or mutton in sacrifice, remember it now for my sake. Save my son, shield him, make his killers go astray. She said more, and she ended the devotions with a heartfelt cry. And then she turned to her women. You maidens, she said. If there is any one of you who is not sharing a bed with one of the islanders, I tell you now is the time. I need you to discover any sign of their plans for my son, that we may help the gods to avert it. Here, one of you take these letters and deliver them to the hand of Amphinomus. If there is one amongst the islanders who might defend my son, I believe that it is him. That night, twenty of the strongest pirates slunk from the halls down to the sea's edge. They took a ship to the Isle of Asteris, where they lay in ambush for Telemachus. In that same hour, Penelope herself was observing an anxious fast, touching neither food or drink, but laying still on her bed while her mind turned circles like a cornered lioness, thinking of nothing but her son's fate. But despite the sickness of her thoughts, sleep overtook her in the end, and Athena came to her that night in a dream, wearing the form of her sister Iphemi to comfort her. The Iphemi told her that Athena stood by, ready to shield her son, but of her husband, the gods forbade her to speak. And then the wavering form dissolved like a breath into the air, and it wafted out through the lock of the door. It left Penelope's spirit only a little lighter for that clear dream near the new day's dawn. The next day, Anthonomos came discreetly to her chambers. He had her letter in his hand, and she ushered him within, offered him wine, and wasting no time, she told him what she feared, that the other pirates were plotting to murder her son. Anthonomos listened, and then he spoke to her gravely. 
my queen, it is true. And to Noas and Eurymachus they do want to kill your son. When they called together the pirates to make their plans known, I had your letters here beside my breast. And I told them it would be a most shameful crime. But in the end it was only the gods who could stay their hand. Because they saw an eagle rising into the sky on the left, and there was a dove clasped in its talons. The priests told them what an ill omen that was. And so they stayed their hand for now. You see, Penelope, the gods do care for you and for your son. And Penelope listened to his words, and she watched him as she did. And for Nomus, he was very handsome, possessed of rugged care and candour, and he did remind her very much of her husband. She said to him then, if only the gods showed such care for the security and future of this kingdom, she said in reply. For they send no signs, and it seems I must abandon hopes of Odysseus, that I must choose a new husband. My own father has sent me letters, and it's clear that they prefer Eurymachus. He has the most influence here, he has sent the richest gifts and spoken to all the right people. But his speeches are not so kind and clever as yours, Anthonomus. And you are first amongst the princes of Delicium, and they outnumber all the rest of the islanders. If I will write further letters to my father, and if you will employ your words in my defence. My lady, Anthonomus bowed. I shall not fail to do so whatever letters you write, as long as I persist here within your halls. And it was in the hours close to midnight that Amphinomus stirred from his sleep. Penelope slept in his arms, and through the cracks in the doorway to the next room, he saw something moving, flashes as if from torches, the murmured whispers of women at work. And spurred from the bed, he approached the door wonderingly. He looked back to check that Penelope was not disturbed, but doing so he let out a, a strangled gasp for a new wonder filled his eyes he could not explain it but looking at the lady with whom he had slept that very eve he saw that her belly was great and thick as if with child and then deep-minded penelope spoke wakened from her sleep why do you look at me so, Amphinomus? <laughs> As if you fear that this was somehow yours. This is the child of a god, of wily Hermes, who has many times visited me in my bed, as the gods are wont to do. He comes always wearing a ram's horns upon his brow, 
in the face of one of you's suitors. Yes, even yours, Anthenomus. I don't know if it's just a game or if it's a prophecy, but since my husband sailed away with the Greek army, I have lived more than a hundred wedding nights. The gods have willed it to be so. This child is the fruit of those dreams. It is Athena's grace that hides it from the eyes of the world. And I wonder what kind of heart this god will have. If they're mine, I think they should long for wild freedom in their heart. His herald should cry his birth and his death out across the sea. What, Anthenomus? Will you stand there forever, amazed? And so Anthenomus might have. But that Athena touched him then with her golden wand, and he was cast under the drift of divine sleep. In the early hours of the following morning, the doors of Penelope's chamber were thrown open with great violence from the hall outside. It was Antinous. He burst into the chamber, and he dragged her handmaiden, Melantho, in by the arm. His eyes flashed as he beheld Penelope and Anthenomus together in the bedchamber. He growled and threw the young girl on the floor before him. The shroud is a trick, he said. She told Eurymachus your secret, Queen Whore of Ithaca. You will finish your woman's work now. Odysseus is dead, and it is time for you to choose which one of us will be your new king. He glowered, first at Anthenomus, and then at Penelope as he marched out. And he spat. Make sure that it is a wise choice. The Dream of Penelope remixes and reinterprets events drawn from the Homeric epic of the Odyssey, the story of Odysseus's return home from the Trojan Wars, which is endlessly frustrated by the malice of the gods, and from less well-known stories which claim his wife Penelope was the mother of the fawn-like god Pan, the Greek divinity of shepherds and wild countryside. It is set on the island of Ithaca, one of seven islands in the Ionian Sea to the west of mainland Greece. There is a modern island of Ithaca, but no one is exactly sure if it is the same island where the Odyssey is set. In the story, suitors from four different island kingdoms congregate on Ithaca, seeking to wed Penelope and take Odysseus's kingdom for themselves. Penelope's story is embedded within the Odyssey, which tells the story of her son Telemachus and his search for his father, as well as her husband's troubled return from Troy. Within this narrative, she plays the role of the faithful and enduring wife. Over the course of ten years after the fall of Troy and Odysseus's disappearance, 
She keeps her faith in his return alive, uses her wit and intelligence to stave off the advances of the encroaching suitors, and welcomes her husband back after his eventual return. Throughout Greek literature and culture, she is held up as a feminine ideal as a direct contrast to the failings of her cousins, the infidelity of Helen who eloped with Paris, and the treachery of Clytemnestra who murdered her husband Agamemnon. But there is more to Penelope than this. Firstly, within the Odyssey itself, Penelope's wit is subtle, and her motivations can be as mercurial as Odysseus's. A traditional reading of Penelope makes her an often passive actor in Odysseus's story. While she orchestrates the deception of the Shroud, after this she waits and she mourns. She is sometimes directed by Athena, but in the end she is forced to bow to the will of the suitors until her husband reveals himself. Indeed, the Odyssey itself not only calls Penelope wise, but compares her more than once to a lion or a lioness. There were also alternative stories about Penelope, which contradicted or complicated her legend as the faithful wife. Some ancient authors questioned Penelope's chastity during the absence of her husband. One tradition stated that she was seduced by the leader of the suitors, Antinous, and exiled by Odysseus on his return home. Several sources insist that Penelope was the mother of the Greek god Pan, either because she slept with every single one of the suitors, a play on the word Pan, which meant all, or that she was the lover of the god Hermes. Some of these alternative traditions were clearly misogynistic in nature, created specifically to disparage the character of women by denying Penelope's legend. But they also represent an opportunity to tell a different story about Penelope from a contemporary perspective. This episode tells the story of Penelope's encounter with Hermes and the birth of Pan in the course of the events in the Odyssey. Through the gates of dream, Hermes comes to her under the guise of the suitors. While Penelope attempts to defend her stewardship of the vacant throne against the depredation of the other islanders, she is forced to deal with their violent intentions for her son and the increasingly precarious nature of her position. Through these dreams, Penelope is presented with a variety of possible choices and futures. Out of them is born Pan, a wild god of nature. You can find a full list of links and sources for our research for this episode on the Lore and Legend website. For more about Penelope and her role in the Odyssey, we recommend listening to Penelope, Weaver of Fate, an episode on the Ancient Greece Declassified podcast, featuring an interview with Professor Olga Levenuk, which was influential in crafting this episode. Now, one of the most famous components of the Odyssey and Penelope's myth is the Ruse of the Shroud. Penelope delays being forced by the suitors to remarry by promising to do so once she has finished weaving a burial shroud for her husband's father, Laertes, who still lives on Ithaca. Secretly, Penelope and her handmaidens weave the shroud during the day and unweave it at night. Now, our version simplifies the story by identifying this as Odysseus's burial shroud lending it a more immediate emotional and symbolic significance, and allowing for the motif of weaving and unweaving Odysseus's story into the shroud. It expresses Penelope's doubts and ambivalence about her husband's fate and the possibility of his return. 
And there are several important symbolic aspects to the shroud, many of which are talked about in that uh, Penelope Weaver of Fate episode on Ancient Greece Declassified. Weaving was an activity that was undertaken by women, and Penelope manages the advances of the suitors partly by using her authority as a woman over this aspect of cultural tradition. Arguably, it's the men's lack of knowledge about weaving and their possible disinterest in following or examining the work that allows her to deceive them about how long such a thing should take. The weaving of cloth, gowns and shrouds is also often bound up with key cultural events like weddings and funerals. So Penelope's assertion that when the weaving stops, there will be a wedding or a funeral is an expression of this theme in Greek myth and also in other cultures where the feminine work of weaving is punctuated by key transitional moments in the lives of women and in the community. The demands of the suitors for Penelope to marry and the symbolic representation of Odysseus's return as a rebirth or renewal within the story is reinforced by the weaving of the shroud, which we might choose to identify with the cloths that they used to redress Odysseus and Penelope's marriage bed at the end of the tale, a symbol of their remarriage and reconsecration of their union after so much time apart. You've been listening to Lauren Legend, The Gates of Dream, Episode 2, Part 1, The Dream of Penelope. Part 2 of this episode will be available to download next week. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Rick Scott. This episode featured music by Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy. Check the episode notes to find links to where you can hear their music and support their creativity. Additional sounds and music were sourced from the community at freesound.org. Full audio credits are available on the website at www.lawandlegend.co.uk. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, find us at www.lawandlegend.co.uk or you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at of Legend. And if you like what you hear and you want us to keep on producing, then please consider making either a one-time donation through Ko-Fi or supporting the podcast regularly through our creators page on Patreon. If you go to our website and click support us, you can find out everything that you need to about that. That's all for now and see you again soon, story folk.